Let's go through every single package installed on a Linux install DVD, specifically Slackware 14.2. Um, of course, these are all open source packages that I'm talking about on this show, so they probably can still apply to you, even if you're not running Slackware and even if you're not running Linux. These are open source packages, so you can download the source code and run them on any computer, whether you're running Linux, Mac, Windows, BSD, doesn't matter. You can learn probably something from this episode. So let's get started. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about Aggregator. That's A-K-R-E-G-A-T-O-R. Aggregator. Like aggregator, except with a K, because it's K-D-E. Aggregator, I don't typically use as its own thing. I use it as part of contact, but the nice thing about contact, K-O-N-T-A-C-T, is that you can use it as as contact, or you can launch each individual application that contact contains as uh, as its own window, as its own service. And you can also interact with it uh, through console, which we talked about in the previous episode with con- uh, console c- uh, calendar. So lots of flexibility here, which I'm really, really liking, and... To be honest, you kind of got to get used to that with it, with KDE. That is one of the, you know, a lot of people, if you look at GNOME and you look at KDE, the, the, the classic, I guess, difference between the two would be, well, GNOME is simple and KDE is complex. And those are just two somewhat arbitrary, arbitrary term, terms. You might hear people also say GNOME is, I don't know, maybe they would call it minimal or something. And, other people might say that KDE is is bloated or something like that. So it just kind of depends on your perspective. For me, though, KDE, KDE has always been about options, about configurability, about customization. And that never concerns me. That doesn't bother me at all, personally. Because I look at that and I, I think to myself, that gives me the tools that I need to design my own experience. The potential problem there is that some people don't want to design their own experience, and I understand that. So I I do not say, you know, I wouldn't say that KDE is necessarily for everyone. I would, I think, kind of say that probably if KDE was all that we had, I think that would be okay, because it's so flexible that you could then design different experiences for different users. And earlier in KDE's life, there were attempts to make that clear to people. And and I really liked the idea. It never quite took off. I don't feel like it ever got quite as fleshed out and developed as it could have. But I remember back in 4. let's call it 8, maybe 4.6, something like that, there was a screen where you could choose the 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 interface style and i don't know maybe this still exists and i just haven't noticed it lately i haven't gone looking for it but i guess i could go look for it right now although i shouldn't because this isn't part of this discussion but there was a there was a time where you could choose the kind of display that you wanted to interact with and one of the the choices for instance was a um a kind of uh, you know, three button interface. You know, it was just like it was your desktop and no menus. It was just big buttons for applications. And, and the idea was that you would open your, at that time, your netbook, which is what they called the EEPC and, and related really, really small laptops. And you would, you would open that. And, and because it was such a small device, uh, you could treat it more almost like, you know, at least the interface, more like a mobile instead of a, a desktop. And and so they had that available as part of KDE. You could switch over to the, whatever they called it, the simple simple desktop interface or something like that. And like I say, maybe they still have that, I don't know. But in other words, what I'm saying is that if you give me lots of options, I'm happy, because I know, I understand that I can ignore 50 of them and use the five that I prefer or that I like, that I actually use. And I'm fine if there are 50 things that I'm not using over there in the corner, uh, because they don't they don't get in the way. Anyway, Aggregator is an application. You can con you can access it through contact, or you can just launch it on its own. 
And it is a feed reader. That is all it does. It just it, it pulls RSS feeds from the internet and delivers the content into into a, an email-like interface, for lack of a better example or a better uh, simile. So the RSS feeds are, of course, the technology that kind of came to kind of came to a head, I guess, during I guess the height of Web 2.0, or maybe the beginning of Web 2.0. I don't know. Um, I'm trying to figure out how far back to go here now because now I've mentioned Web 2.0. If you don't know what Web 2.0 is, well, there was the web, and then there was Web 2.0. And from what I recall, Web 2.0, the big thing that differentiated it from just the web was that web 2.0 was an interactive experience users people who went to the internet formerly just to look up information were now part of the building process users could make comments they could vote on things they could go and submit stories to to websites like slashdot and um uh, what's that other one that's no longer around I forget what it's called, duplicitous or scrutacular or something like that. Um, but you know, the idea was that the that the the users were going to sort of generate their own content for the internet, and that was the exciting thing about Web 2.0. There might have been other things about REST APIs and things like that, but from from I think a casual user's um, perspective. Web 2.0 was ushering in this interactive experience. And not that RSS is interactive, but one of the things that sort of happened around the same time is that blogs became very popular. You had normal people who didn't know how to design a website. They were making, they, they were writing blogs. They were becoming sort of journalists on the internet. They were self-publishing on this platform that no one had really thought of as for you know as something that casual users really were meant to use in a serious way beyond weird geocities websites so they were starting to make things with like wordpress and drupal and other uh, joomla and, and other platforms like that uh, software like that and as part of of that structure someone uh, came up with this idea of rss and it was really simple syndication. The sad thing about RSS is that its XML is atrocious. <laughs> it might be simple um, syndication, but but wow, is it just an ugly format. So luckily, there's been an improvement upon RSS called Atom, A-T-O-M. You'll notice that GNU World Order, this podcast, has both an RSS feed and an Atom feed. And I do that largely because I just... Every time I look at RSS, I wish it were Atom, and so I, I just can't have RSS out there without accompanying it with an Atom feed on principle alone. Um, Ken Fallon actually got me looking at it critically, and, and that's why to this day I have an Atom feed. So a- Aggregator doesn't care what you tell it to read, it, it, it understands both, and the setup is pretty simple. You go to File. No, you don't. You, uh, uh, where do you go to, you go to feed. There you go. Feed, it's a menu. You go to feed, and you go to add feed. I don't add feeds all that often. I've, I've got my feeds set up, and it's kind of, kind of set to go now. So anyway, you go to feed, add feed, add feed, and it's, all it needs is a URL. And so you can, you can give it a URL of an, of a, RSS or an Atom feed, such as let's do, I don't know, let me think. Here's one. Um, opensource.com slash feed happens to be that website's RSS feed. Now, is that the only format for a URL containing a RSS feed? No, of course not. There's lots of different things. People can call these things whatever they want. So, for instance, I might add a feed and go to HTTPS colon slash slash NVD. That's November Victor Delta dot NIST dot gov slash feeds slash XML slash CVE slash MISC slash NVD dash RSS dash analyzed dot XML. That's the RSS feed for the CVE uh, bug database, or, or one of them anyway. And lots of others. I mean, there's KDE.news. That's always a good one. That's kind of built in, but you could do it. And that one's 
kde.org slash dot kdeorg dot rdf. So anyway, you can add feeds in there all you want, and and then after a while, I mean, you can click on, there's a toolbar that says fetch feed, or fetch all feeds, so I'll click fetch all feeds. I mean, it would do that on its own or anyway, but I, I, I'm... I'm forcing it to 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 scan all of the feeds for updates, and actually, it's it isn't fetching any because it is up to date. Um, the the nice thing about aggregator is that it it just runs in the background. I mean, as you know, if you've la- launched contact or aggregator itself, it kind of goes up into the toolbar, the system tray rather, uh, or I guess down. I have my KDE kicker at the top of my screen, but if you have it on the bottom of your screen, then it goes down into the system tray, wherever your system tray is located. It sits there and updates things all day. You know, you'll get new stories throughout the day uh, as things are posted. So it's it's quite nice. And and then you can read the story in in aggregator. So I mean, you you don't necessarily get to if if the RSS feed doesn't contain the story. Some things don't. They just show you the 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 first paragraph, and then they have a link to read more of that story, and you click on that. And in theory, it would then open up a web browser and you could continue reading. But in Aggregator, again, because it's got... KDE has a, a pretty darned good HTML rendering engine. How, how good is it? Oh, let me, let me tell you how good it is, actually. Apple Computers took the KDE HTML rendering engine called KHTML forked it and released it as WebKit, which, of course, everyone knows now because it's the foundation for a bunch of different browsers, including Google, which forked, I think, WebKit for Blink or something like that. Is that right? I could be wrong about that. But the the thing is that it's it's all over the place. It's hugely, hugely influential. So KHTML exists, and it is just a component of the KDE framework, and so it can be integrated into really any K application, and indeed it is. So you click on you click on read more and I mean, you know, technically I guess we could say yes, it is opening a web browser because I mean, if it's a KDE or if it's an HTML rendering engine, I guess it it kind of qualifies as a, a web browser, but it does it in a tab and and so you can just read you know, the whole story just right there in the in that little mini browser. So really really convenient. It's Really nice to um, to have an RSS feed reader. I think I think it's just um, such a nice feature because that saves me from going sort of onto the internet in a way. I mean, I'm I, it doesn't. I'm obviously going onto the internet because I am pulling data from from the internet. But in other words, I don't have to open up. I don't have to consciously open a web browser, navigate to a site, endure its front page, look at its pop-up ad. Well, I wouldn't look at that anyway. I have a web, uh, uh, you know, an ad blocker and stuff. But you know what I mean? Like, you don't have to go to the thing. And and whether that's a feature for you because you're lazy and you just don't want to have to go and open an internet browser, which is kind of me. But also, I mean, that you know, the internet can be very distracting as well. So you, you go... You go to one site to check to see if there's any new stories, and and then you end up looking at uh, cat pictures or something. You know, it's just it's very easy to get distracted sometimes if you're that sort of person. So so that that's kind of a feature for some people as well. For me, it's just a it's a matter of not only being too lazy to do the all the clicks required to open up an internet browser and then go to each sing each and every page. It it is a sheer number thing though as well. I. I I don't follow a lot of sites, but I do follow, the, you know, stuff on enough sites to make it inconvenient to physically go check all the time to see what kind of new content they have. I would rather have the content delivered to one place, aggregator, and that way I could look through the headlines really quick, see if there's anything I'm interested in, read whatever I am interested in, and, and ignore the rest, mark the rest um, as, as read. And that is, of course, the thing that you can do. You, you know, if, if you've got a bunch of, um, bunch of articles that you haven't bothered reading, which actually I do right here, there's a planet KDE PIM, and I, it's still active. It's just, it is not something that I look at all the time. There's a lot of, um, there's actually a lot of good stuff in there. I just, 
Oh, wow. Notes on packaging Krita with G-Mike. G- G- yeah, actually, this is really good. I was going to do as an example, I could I could mark the feed as red, meaning everything in this feed would just show up in uh, as red. But I, I don't actually want to do that because that's really good. How about CVE? I'm not going to look at... I mean, I will look at that, but I don't need to look at the ones from like 2021 probably. So I'm going to mark that feed as red and all of the all of the the articles now in the cve report shows up as um as processed so and and a lot of the cve reports are kind of repetitious anyway i mean they're not but i generally scan for the 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 software that it is affecting and so for instance unitrends backup well that doesn't apply to me so I am happy to select all of those and mark all of those as red because I just don't need to. I, I don't need to find out what is up in that particular software. It wouldn't hurt me to find out, but I mean that's just not something that's important. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of flexibility here. It's, it's essentially, like I say, it's it's a lot like an email application. It's just instead of for email, it's for articles from the internet, and I think it's just the greatest thing, really. I, I don't know what I would do without a good feed reader. I know a lot of people had online feed readers, which uh, I guess for me in a weird way defeats the purpose. Um, it's not that I don't like the internet. It's not like that I don't like the an internet browser. It's just, to be honest, not something I necessarily need to interact with all the time. And so I like those little adjunct applications that kind of keep me out of the browser for, for a while. Um, I like that. So... And, and as I say, the beautiful thing about it is that once you open it up, it pops up into the system tray, and and there it sits, and it gets updates throughout the day, so you can check in, you know, at the, at the start of your day and at the end of your day, or, or during your lunch break, or whatever, and and get all the the content that you want. Highly, highly recommended. The great, great thing about aggregator too is that you're you're kind of archiving depending on the feed but you might be archiving a bunch of of interesting content and i have actually bailed um a couple of people out before who you know for whatever reason their their feed got corrupted or or destroyed or or something and i have been able to i mean it's a bit of a hack and it's not beautiful but you can you can extract the feed from aggregator and and rebuild it from there so it's kind of a nice kind of it's just part of i guess the distributed backup that the internet and consuming content from the internet ends up kind of enabling so that's aggregator i don't know that i have a whole lot more to say about it uh let me see if there's anything super cool in the package itself that i'm not thinking of no, there's not. There's Aggregator Storage Exporter, but it's not well documented, and I, I can't really do a whole lot with a not well documented command. I mean, it's so not well documented that if you type in dash dash help, it returns quote dash dash help. So it, I'm I'm not really sh- entirely sure what. It, I mean, if you just type it in with nothing, you you you're kind of prompted. It, it says Aggregator. Um, storage exporter bracket dash dash base 64 close bracket url so obviously i guess it's gonna you know if i do like base 64 example dot com then i get in in quotes i get some something in base 64 i imagine it's probably example dot com so uh, i'm i'm i assume it's doing something useful probably for aggregator maybe that's how it is naming the sort of storage component or the yeah the, the storage objects for a feed maybe I'm not sure I don't know why users would need access to it but that is a command that gets installed but other than that the the other binary in, installed with the package is aggregator itself okay it's time for coffee and then we're going to come back and take some listener feedback <laughs> Thank you. 
coffee. Let's continue the show with listener feedback. Going through some listener feedback in no particular order other than the order I stumble across them as I look through the various places that they arrive. First one here is from Carl. Carl says, I'm not new to computers, Linux, or even open source, but up until recently, I've been a consumer only. It's been just the past couple of years where I've started to be a contributor in my own little way, and I must say it's been extremely rewarding. I maintain a handful of packages for Alpine Linux, one of which is a small but feature-rich web server called Alt-HTTPD. Uh, this is Klaatu here. I'd not heard of that one. I, I do follow a couple of different sort of tiny web server projects, not really for any reason lately. Um, I've kinda, I think I've kind of probably just settled on Nginx, if, if, if I'm honest, just because that's what I seem to keep installing, so I guess that must mean something. But um, that's a cool one uh, to, to know about. I'll, I'll have to check that one out. Okay, back to Carl. He says, I had an issue with the last modified header returning the string UTC instead of GMT, which caused errors with some clients like WGET and APK, the Alpine Package Manager. I had a trivial patch accepted within Alpine and reported the issue upstream, but didn't get a response. Over the course of the last week, there was new activity at the Alt-HTTPD repository by a developer named Stephen Beal, who was adding TLS support to Alt-HTTPD, and in the process got back to me about my GMT patch and accepted it, which was really cool. Anyway, I checked on checked out Stephen's website and thought of you because of his section on tabletop gaming, which I thought you might find of interest, and also his code repos, which enable some tools for generating card games and things. I hope you have a great 2022. So this is really obviously maybe very cool. Um, I think it's obvious, but um, yeah, it, it's it's really neat. So Alt HTTPD is hosted at least on sqlite.org. So I don't know what that means in terms of sort of where it comes from and who wrote it. Um, I almost suspect that maybe it is associated with Fossil, SQLite, that whole... I mean, I guess it is associated by 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 the fact that it exists on sqlite.org. But I, I, yeah, I kind of wonder if it's if it's mixed up with, with for instance, Fossil. I didn't do a whole lot of... Um, I mean, I read the, the, the page, but I, it didn't... That didn't give sort of a history of the project, and I didn't go searching it down, but it looks very cool, and so I'm going to have to try it at some point, definitely. So, Stephen Beal's website is wanderinghorse.com, or dot, dot .net, sorry, slash home, slash Stephen, and uh, it, it does indeed have a bunch of really, really cool uh, physical gaming resources that um, that are just really really nice. And so if you if you are into that sort of thing, absolutely go check out the site wanderinghorse.net. Hopefully, it has an RSS feed because if it does, I will definitely subscribe to it, but I will admit I have not come across an RSS feed on it yet. That said, sometimes sometimes they are a little bit hidden away, you know, sometimes they're just kind of like the website slash for instance RSS, not in this case. How about slash feed? No. So I'm not sure if that has an RSS feed. But anyway, it's a very cool site, and um, now I know about it. So alt-httpd and wanderinghorse.net if you're into gaming or Linux, really, because both apply there. Or, or I guess I should say, um, yeah, Linux, actually. I was trying to be more specific, like you know, running a Linux server or something, but I mean, that counts. It's Linux. Okay, so next up is going to be uh, DeepGeek who had a sort of a, by his own uh, admission, a meandering GNU World Order feedback. He says, Hey, Klaatu, wanted to write a few GWO-related things to you, but they are all small things, so use as many or as few as you like on the show, but still things I wanted to let you know of. So here we go. First off, I feel I put a little curse on myself when I wrote to you that I had no problem using SystemD. I recently had a ZFS problem, and SystemD got in the way of troubleshooting. It was a minor thing, but there are many, many interactions between ZFS and SystemD, and its complicated nature got to me. I remember the pride I felt that SysV init was supported as an alternative startup system in Debian, so I went to, so I went over to it. I found it much easier to control than SystemD once I got it into place. A pleasant surprise to me was the fact 
that it uses this new program called Start Par, which starts demons and services in parallel. So it's fast, too. I'll just have to use flat packs instead of snaps in the future, which I think should be fine. Yeah, this is, um, I mean, that's great, a great little story, really. I mean, I, not having enough experience with ZFS, I, I have nothing to comment on this whatsoever. And, and, you know, my, my interactions with System D so far have not really focused on the troubleshooting. I mean, I have had to troubleshoot things on a System D system, uh, quite a, quite a number of things, really. But nothing, I guess, I mean, certainly not ZFS. So right there, that's that's not the same. Is there a problem with sort of the way ZFS and Systemd interact? Or, or if, if not a problem, subtleties that maybe make it complex? I don't know. I don't know. Um, apparently it was too complex for DeepGeek, which could mean that he either didn't want to sit down and figure it out, or it means that it was just kind of not reasonably simple. And apparently SysV and it, for him was made it simpler. Um, yeah, I guess what I'm saying is it's an anecdote and, and I don't know what it, what it shows, but it shows for me that the, the one thing it shows is that having alternatives is really, really important. And I do hope that people keep that in mind, like that we all keep that in mind as we're developing stuff, because if system D actually did become the only option, I think that would be, um, not optimal. And, you know, I mean, it, it is the only option, sort of, in a way, on, on some distributions. So is that, is that the, the right choice to make for your distribution? I don't know. I mean, it depends, you know? I mean, like, I guess it just depends on how you view your distribution. And, and certain distributions tend to see themselves as, as, as a product, and others see themselves, I think, more as a toolkit. I don't know one is worse than the other or better than the other. I'm just saying I think there is a difference there. I think Debian is definitely among those that views itself more as a toolkit, or at least is viewed as a toolkit. And then I think that they support that view by supporting a bunch of different options. And honestly, I mean, even Slackware, while it doesn't necessarily support different options, it, it does support different options. I've had a... I've, I've run Systemd on Slackware. I had a friend who did, who got me into doing it. Uh, I mean, not not in production or anything, but as a as a as an interesting experiment. I've swapped out um, system or not uh, for the BSD init system on Slackware for um, Ninit in int not not minute but Ninit and and you know you, you could do it with BusyBox. You you can swap the, the things out on these distributions. And that's a really, really refreshing thing, I think, for some people. For other people, they're just never going to do it. So anyway, interesting anecdote, good to know about, something to watch out for if you're going to be running ZFS on a System D system, possibly. Uh, it would also be interesting to hear more about, like, Open ZFS and, well, even ButterFS, I guess, is, is the eternal question. Anyway, DeepGeek continues, would love a full episode on package source. I actually went into your archive and pulled out your old one, which was a w- was a part of an episode thing, and I wanted more depth. So if I have to vote, to, uh, so if I have a vote, I say yes, please, to the idea of a package source episode. I know you and I are different, uh, as I happen to like patch package managers, but for me, package managers is a great tool to help me build vastly different systems as the situation requires. But I do want to know about it as well, uh, as try it sometime. And yeah, I. I I should do a package source episode, and maybe I'll just do a NetBSD episode because there are some subtleties to how NetBSD works just in general that I think are interesting to hear about. You know, there's a lot of, especially for a Slackware user, you look at NetBSD, and and maybe other BSDs as well, but certainly NetBSD for me because that's the one I'm using. Um, You look at it, and, and it looks and feels just surprisingly similar in many, many ways. But then there are weird little things, like, for instance, when you're enabling a service. Everything's in slash Etsy slash RC dot D, but they don't start with RC dot. Not a big deal, but it's something to be aware of, because if you're sitting there doing an pseudo slash Etsy slash, you know, trying to start a thing in RC dot and you're tabbing and there's nothing there, that's why. There's nothing that starts with RC dot D is just the name of the thing. The, the demon. And then even like when you're in, a, if you start it and it's not enabled, that's, that's considered 
not something that you should be doing, and so you have to do it specifically with a special command, one start or one stop, and and enabling it is a little bit different, because in Slackware, you just chmod plus x that script. NetBSD, you're supposed to list it in rc.com, little, little things like that, in other words. So lots of similarities, and then sudden suddenly differences. Um, and, and package source is an interesting component of that, I think, um, and the difference, I guess, with about package source is that it, it could be extracted from NetBSD, and often is, and run on some other system. And so that makes it, I think, widely of interest. So maybe something about package source, and then about NetBSD, or something like that. I don't know, special episode or something. Or a not special episode, it could just be any episode. But there you go, that's... I'll definitely do something about that. Uh, I probably need to sit down and run package source on something other than my Raspberry Pi, though. I mean, I, I have. I've run it on my laptop. I've run it on Slackware. I've just never, I've never fully committed to it because I've always had another packaging option on a on a system. And package source doesn't have literally everything that I need, so it's always been kind of an adjunct and kind of a an awkward adjunct at that because as i've said before it really wants to see a certain base level of a certain foundation of of installations which get put into user package whatever and so you've got kind of this this other system lingering around on your on your system just for the package source packages and 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 that just has always felt a little bit weird I, I, and believe me, dear listener, I understand that this is coming from someone who says, I'm really enjoying flat packs. I don't care about the duplication. So, yes, I understand the, the, the hypocrisy there. Um, but the, I'm not saying it makes sense. I'm simply saying it's always kind of, it's just been a weird thing and I just, I can't quite fully commit. And the reason I can't quite fully commit is because it doesn't have all of the packages that I want. So, on Slackware, I mean, Slackware doesn't have all the packages I want either, and neither does Slack builds, but I have sort of a, a system down to, to to how to get everything that I do want on Slackware, and then that's an amalgamation of Slack builds, of flat packs, of custom scripts, and so on. So I, I put it all together, I document it on slackermedia.info, and there you go. Adding package source into the mix is kind of weird because it, it basically has a bunch of overlap with Slack builds, less what it doesn't have. And so it's kind of like, well, why am I doing that? So I've, I've, I've run it on other systems, but yeah, it does seem like it's never the package manager with the stuff that nothing else has, and it always seems to be the package manager with the stuff that everything else has. And so why do you need it? You don't necessarily. So it is a little bit of an awkward um, place. Um, but boy, is it nice when when you do need it for instance, on NetBSD. Okay, so lastly, DeepGeek says, I was surprised to hear you talking about Lilo in your kernel episode. My understanding was that it was no longer developed, and I find using Refind so easy. I like the way it scans to find things. It knows how to boot without a configuration file, but I do like the configuration file because I can tell it text mode, and it gives me what I think of as a Lilo-looking boot screen. I also like to add the Tiano core shell, so if something really goes wrong, I can get a shell and maybe fix things easily. Well, I just use what Slackware gives me. <laughs> so, uh, Lilo, I think, is not being developed, but it's being patched or something like that for some reason. And then there's also eLilo for UEFI systems. I don't, I don't remember exactly. I think I'm, I think I must be using eLilo. Uh, but honestly, I don't even remember at this point. This is my 14.2 system, so you have to understand this thing has been on this computer for years. I have no memory of how it got installed. All I know is that it's here, and I use it every day, and I love it. So yeah, I'm not exactly sure. I do know that yes, I issue a command. Lilo to update some file somewhere to, to so that when I boot I get my new kernel in the selection menu. That's that's as much as I know about um, my boot process. Refind um, sounds like a great idea. Really leaning into the EFI side of things sounds like a really smart idea. I have fond memories of. Do I have fond memories or do I just have memories? I have memories of a lot of EFI work uh, that I that I did at an old 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 job. So, yeah, maybe I should try try this 
crazy scheme. With uh, Slackware 15.0, I'm, I'm hoping to really kind of go out of my comfort zone in terms of file systems and maybe boot processes and certainly hard drives because I've got this NVMe drive in this new build of my workstation that's just sitting there right now, just waiting for 15.0 to be released and to then be put onto it. So, yeah, we'll see what happens there. We'll see what I end up using. Okay, and then there's um, there's a little bit of an announcement here. This is not listener feedback as such, but a friend of mine, Amalith, on Mastodon, runs a bunch of really cool services. And one of the things that he's somehow involved with, and I, I don't exactly know his involvement, but whatever it is, I heard about it from him. So he he's... He's part of this, um, what's called a fede ring. So a fede is the prefix of fediverse, which is an amalgamation of a, or what is it, an, an, um, what do you call it when you portmanteau? Uh, a fede, federation multiverse, or universe multiverse, I don't know. So fediverse, federation, federated universe, or multiverse, or whatever kind of verse, which means, which is a reference to Mastodon and to um, Identica and... And the the idea that web applications should consist of a bunch of self-hosted entities that connect to each other to provide sort of additional functionality and context. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, jump on Mastodon and you'll start to kind of get an idea. I mean, if you look at it without thinking, it'll just look like another website with a bunch of stuff on it. But what's really happening there is that People like you and me are running Mastodon instances on their computers, and they connect. Not they don't do it manually, but but they their clients connect to other running instances of Mastodon, and because they are talking to each other, you can see activity on someone else's Mastodon instance or their Identica instance or their GNU Social instance or whatever is federated. You can, you can see that information. It's a really, really big deal. It's an, a very significant deal because in many ways, this probably is going to have to be, I would think, web, you know, our web. As, as the web moves further and further towards just being dominated and, and sort of controlled by very large industries, the, the way for normal people to still connect is through federation. Because otherwise you're just signing into someone else's website, right? And and the experience you're having there is very much the experience that that corporation or that organization, whatever, has fostered and and cultivated. You can see this in real life. If you talk to a friend who uses Twitter, then very, very often their world is defined by Twitter, and and I don't mean that in a negative way. I'm just saying that their perception of the world is defined on Twitter. So, for instance, if they wake up and there's a thousand people or 500 or 100 people, whatever your brain can process, there's a bunch of people having an argument about bananas or apples, then their world view is that there is a great controversy about whether a banana or an apple is a better fruit. And that's a big deal because Twitter said it was a big deal. And I, I experience this very frequently because I'm, I think we all probably are around people who use Twitter in real life. And, and so you'll hear about it. They'll say, you know, they'll start talking about something and they'll say how on Twitter such and such has happened or people are talking about that on Twitter. And that kind of in some weird way, I guess, is supposed to give it almost like legitimacy or something. And it's really interesting to me because half the time I don't know what they're talking about. I don't know that Twitter cares about this subject. I certainly don't care about the subject. And just because Twitter apparently cares about it, I'm not going to care about it. That There's no, there's no correlation there whatsoever. But for people on Twitter, they're kind of sort of almost made to care about the thing. Whatever it is, bananas versus apples, Marvel versus DC, Linux versus Windows versus Mac, you know, whatever the hot topic is that day on Twitter, they, they, they think that it's important because it's on Twitter. And the same goes with Facebook and the same goes with, with all the other uh, websites out there. People who have signed up have signed up for a, a, a certain culture. And that can be a kind of a bummer sometimes, you know, like 
all you did was, all you thought you were doing was signing up to use some software. And what you were actually doing is, is, is joining a, a, a culture that you may or may not appreciate. And half the time, for whatever reason, people who don't appreciate it don't also seem to have the idea to then walk away from it. And I think the, the reason for that is because they're not, they didn't sign up for the culture. They signed up for the software. They like the software. They don't want to leave the software. The culture, maybe, they don't like. But in order to leave the culture, they have to leave the software. On Mastodon, on Federation, if you like the software, you can continue to use the software. If you dislike the culture, you can simply not connect to that culture. Now, I'm believe me, I'm not, I'm not putting on rose-tinted glasses here. I understand that some people can't walk away from culture that they find unhealthy. So it's not necessarily that evil proprietary software is forcing people to stay in abusive situations. People do that to themselves as well, and I understand that. But I'm just saying that that frequently there is a weird split there. But with the Federation, if you have the, the will to do it, you can separate between culture and software. And sometimes that's really important. And I've really enjoyed that about Mastodon for myself. I, I, I block things left and right on Mastodon very frequently for completely, you know, arbitrary reasons. Someone just so happens to talk about milkshakes. I never want to hear about milkshakes. I will just mute that person or maybe even mute their entire server. And you have the freedom to do that on Mastodon. It may or may not make sense to an outside observer. Doesn't matter. Whatever the, whatever you want your little software interface to look like the content you want delivered to you or the content you you want to maximize because you can't generally guarantee what people are going to be talking about but you get the feel for certain communities and then you can connect to them or not and i think that's going to be important going forward how does this relate to amalith and his feda ring well, a long time ago on the internet way before web 2.0 there were these things called web rings and the idea there was that you would find other websites, or someone would find a bunch of websites on a on similar topics, and they would invite those websites to be part of this ring. And that way, you could go to um, well, let's let's say it's a Lord of the Rings fan community. So you go to the Hobbit website, the Hobbit fan website, and you get your little photo tour of the Shire, and it's really neat and it's really fun. And you think, I just can't get enough Lord of the Rings content. I'm going to... but I, And I notice that this is on the Lord of the Rings web ring. So I'm going to click and go to the next site in the ring. And it would go to whatever whatever the other site in the, the web ring is signed up. And so you would go to a different site about... This one would, might be about all about the Black Riders and, and what they were and what they are now and what they've become later. And, and it's a great website, too. That's, that's great fun. And so then you can go to the next web, the, the next site in the web ring. And so you just keep going. And, and eventually you would circle back around to the Shire because it is a web ring. So it, it would eventually end. But that was a great way to sort of almost give websites kind of like a tag, as it were, because you could, you would know that, that there's some similar, there's some similar grouping to these websites. And you could, you could trust more or less that within this web ring, as long as people were, um, uh, curating it properly that if you click onto the next the next place you, you'll go to the next you'll, you'll go to some site with related content and it was useful because that was literally before the days that google did not exist web indexing hardly existed so if you wanted a certain kind of content that was a that was one way to find the content was just to find a web ring that you enjoy and then go around to all the different sites within that ring does it scale? Probably not. But the idea of that, I think, is a is, is a nice little. It, it builds small communities around web content, which I, I quite like. Now, a Fediverse web ring, a Feta ring, is is basically just building a opt-in community with people on on Mastodon, essentially, or, or in the Fediverse. So it could be Mastodon, it could be GNU Social, it could be whatever. So there, there's not necessarily a whole lot in common between the websites necessarily, in other words. However, I thought it was a cool idea. I think it's really neat to kind of bring back web rings 
And so GNU World Order is now on the Feda ring. So if you go to gnuworldorder.info, on the left-hand side, you'll find a link for the Feda ring. You can click a left arrow or a right arrow to go to the next or the previous website in the Feda ring. I cannot guarantee what you are going to find in this ring. There are going to be um, sites by different people from the Fediverse. So some of them are going to be highly techno uh, tech-focused. Others are going to probably just be sort of interesting cultural artifacts. Who knows what you'll find. It's not necessarily, you know, a, a Linux... Well, it's certainly not a Linux podcast ring, uh, and, and it's not even necessarily a Linux ring, but it is a ring of webs, of websites that, uh, by people who exist on the, on the Fediverse. So, GNU World Order is now part of that Feta ring, and I think it's really great that Amalith is, uh, contributing in whatever way he is contributing to that, to that idea. I think it's really cool. And let's see, there is a, um, what, uh, email from Matthias who had written in earlier about a, a this idea of kind of a mainframe setup. And so this is kind of interesting. So he says, many thanks for discussing the topic. I had a test setup running. A notebook served as the mainframe and a Raspberry Pi as the terminal. Both devices were in the same local area network. If I remembered correctly, they were connected to the same switch, but there is a chance that they were just um, patched uh, using a patch cable and a LAN to USB dongle. The Pi had a user named Student, who was not asked for any password, but in, in Etsy slash password, I set a shell script as this user's shell. It basically worked like this. The Pi boots into a multi-user target. The student um, you, 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 user, uh, and then press return. So the user is student, and then you press return. The shell script emulates a login prompt. The user gives credentials for the mainframe, and then the credentials are fed to the SSH command. The actual student is to enter the scene at 4 to start a session by logging in. Uh, so that, that would be 4. Uh, you're not seeing the the, um, the numbered list. So that's when the, the, the user gives credentials for the mainframe. So this is a, a fake prompt, in other words, that they're typing into. The, the student enters this, this scenario in, at the fourth step uh, to start a session by logging in. The whole thing is meant to be a kind of mobile setup made up of a mainframe, 10 to 20 terminals, a switch, and some wires. I am pretty sure the Pi 400 would more than do the trick, but it lacks a display. Um, Crow Pie probably would do it too, but as you've pointed out, it's overkill. Um, that's that's his email. I, it's such a cool, cool project, and um, I would love to see something like that set up. I mean, really, like, wouldn't it be brilliant to have that set up in a in a big room with a bunch of yeah? I can picture it in my head. You got the Cray, you got the VT one hundreds, and it's it's just it's all. It's perfect. It's perfect. I don't know what you would do with it. I don't know why it would exist, but uh, it just sounds so cool. Of course, you know, I I have certain romantic ideas of, about that sort of, you know, the mainframe setup and so on. I've never been around one. I've never interacted with one. I know people who have and who still are. I know someone who still uses a mainframe. Like, he's actually a mainframe programmer, D-O-D-D-D, or D-O-D-D dummy. Um, is is still a he, he works on mainframes like that's his job it's it's crazy um, so I, I have these ideas and 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 I'm sure a lot of people have similar notions of how how interesting that must have been and how cool that must have been you know and I, I just have no idea really it's not something I actually know anything about I'm sure there are rough edges there that you would just not enjoy. Um, but I still think the idea is is really fun, and and even, I mean it could just be the barest emulation. You know, it doesn't have to be a big a big complex, true to life thing. I just think it's it's a lot of fun to even just to pretend like you have such a setup is kind of cool. There is, of course, I might as well mention openmainframeproject.org, which I keep an eye on. It's still way out of my reach, but. It is quite interesting. It runs projects like um, Open Open Mainframe. Uh, I don't know how to say it. Zoe project, which is like Kubernetes on on a mainframe. Um, it's fascinating, fascinating stuff. I would love to just get some experience with a mainframe. I think it'd be really, really interesting and fun. I mean, 
there are there are places you can log in and use a mainframe. So that that is a thing that happens. There's a podcast called I Am a Mainframer uh, over at Open Mainframe. So you could check that out if you want. Just openmainframeproject.org slash news slash podcast. It's a whole different world. Fascinating stuff. Anyway, that's all the listener feedback I have, I think. I mean, I've probably forgotten something, no doubt. Uh, my my inbox got a little bit carried away this time around. But I, th- I think I hit most of them. I mean, not that that matters to the person I've missed. So thank you for listening. I'm sorry if I've missed your email or, or Mastodon message. Next time we are going to talk about Alchemia and Analitza and Arc and maybe Articulate. We'll find out. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open I just don't believe you could be of any help right now.